This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. On this episode of the Commonweal Podcast, the editors talk about the HBO limited series Chernobyl. Our literary editor, Anthony Domestico, talks with Casey Sepp, whose new book is Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. And Nicole Ann Lobo, Commonweal's John Garvey Writing Fellow, sits down with activist Felix Cepeda, who works to raise awareness of issues and topics like women's ordination, Black Lives Matter, and sanctuary churches. This is the Commonweal Podcast. On April 26, 1986, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine, Soviet Union, suffered a massive explosion that released radioactive material across Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine, and as far as Scandinavia and Western Europe. That event was turned into a five-part limited series on HBO starring Jared Harris, Stellan Skarsgård, and Emily Watson. And I'm here with our associate editor, Matthew Simpman, and our assistant editor, Griffin Olenek, to talk about the series, uh, which you can see on HBO. Griffin, I just want to start with you because uh, I know you had some thoughts about about the series itself, its production, its acting, uh, some of its aesthetic. Well, thanks for having me on, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> Always a pleasure. But so, I mean, I thought it was really beautiful. Visually, it was super interesting. I loved looking at the the Soviet block housing. I know they used authentic uh, locations in Lithuania and the Ukraine. But then you get the the kind of monumental Communist Party headquarters there itself in the city of Pripyat, uh, Mm -hmm. which is close to Chernobyl. Um, And you get the sort of beautiful socialist, realist mosaics. Uh, You sort of see all the trappings Mm -hmm. of Soviet visual power. Mm -hmm. You also see the reactor control room, the halls of power in Moscow. But the really interesting thing is this sort of sci-fi, I almost want to call it like an ethereal beauty that pervades the entire series. There's the explosion itself, which some of the the citizens of Pripyat watch from a roof, uh, or sorry, from a bridge. But then there are also these these scenes of soldiers spraying down the streets to get rid of the contamination. There's uh, what was called the exclusion zone close Mm -hmm. to the Chernobyl disaster had to eventually be cleansed of all, basically of all life. And so there are these really surreal and strange scenes of soldiers eliminating uh, all kinds of livestock and pets. It really has the feel of a zombie horror film. Yeah, and um, even sort of plowing underground in some scenes. I, I yeah. Think turning over uh, soil and earth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so apart from the visual stuff, it was also, I thought, really dramatically satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminded me a lot of, uh, actually, the series Law & Order. I know a lot was talked about. There's a, a mm-hmm. Times piece uh, in the New York Times where a, a critic said, well, it follows the, the plot of a disaster film, and that's certainly true. But it's also very much like a police procedural. Mm. Um, we sort of see an investigation unfolding under a dramatic uh, timeline. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's done really compellingly. It feels like there's no fluff in the narrative. Mm -hmm. It's just always straight to the point. It is very tight. That is is kind of true. And it's it's an interesting uh, limited series in that I think it kind of uh, evinces different reactions and can be viewed on on a number of different levels. And Matt Simon, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because uh, certainly there's been some response to how the Soviet system is depicted, how I guess responses to authority are depicted, and maybe you can talk about 
that a little. Right. Yeah. It seems like with almost any any phenomenon in popular culture, we mm-hmm. feel the need to interpret it politically these days. I mean, we saw this with Game of Thrones too, mm-hmm. like comparing, you know, various candidates to Khaleesi or, <laughs> you know, so we, we can't just watch something and enjoy it seemingly. But in this case, because it was so directly political in the sense of it dealt with a specific political regime and then you know, political leaders responding to a disaster. It did kind of invite these political readings. One was that it's about climate change, hmm. like it's a sort of cautionary mm. tale about mm. you know, ignoring the known facts of mm. an ecological disaster and what might come of that. Uh, I think there was just an article in Salon about that. But some people, of course, have said it's a kind of story about Trump too, mm. or it resonates with Trump, meaning – what are the costs of lies in mm-hmm. our political life? Uh, what does it mean to be hostile to the truth? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was that kind of inevitable reading of it in light of Trump. But then, too, you had the conservative reactions to that. And there was just an article the other day in National Review that said, no, this isn't about Trump. It's about socialism. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, – and I think maybe the the best – piece on this was, was Masha Gessens in The New Yorker, yeah. where she talked about what the show gets right and what it gets wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, as a as someone who you know, lived through, you know, the kind of in the Soviet Union and, and is very plugged into Russian politics, she had a lot of insight into this. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, uh, it, it did, this is where adopting the kind of disaster movie narrative maybe hurt it some because Mm -hmm. instead of showing the very there are glimpses where you see how the soviet system worked yeah but instead of that's very hard to portray on screen so it ended up taking the form of a handful of bad guys who who kind of are responsible for the disaster and then a handful of good guys and one good girl (laughs) one one, one good woman who kind of investigate it and it sets up that tension in a way that she thinks wasn't necessarily true to the way power actually operated in the soviet union and falls into kind of star wars narrative yeah and certain things too like where everyone kind of reacted to the threat of being shot and she actually said it wasn't actually that explicit in the soviet union you kind of you know people kind of become conditioned to just kind of perceive how power is operating they resign i thought the word she used that that was sort of interesting to me was yeah sort of that resignation resignation yeah yeah, that is the word she used so that was you know just in reading some of the commentary on the show that those political themes jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in, in – I was very eager to see uh, – to watch this because um, as somebody who is old enough to remember the event itself, I was a, I was probably a junior in college. And, uh, and as, as I was saying in, in the office recently, um, 1986 was a lot different from 2019. There wasn't this uh, sense of news constantly being reported. There was no social media. There was no internet. There was no cable TV news. And when word of this started – coming out, it was rather alarming and rather frightening because you didn't hear it about much of it right away. It leaked out, so to speak, over days. And really, the first we heard of it was when officials in places like Finland and Norway were reporting elevated radiation levels. And nobody knew really the extent of the disaster at that point. And I think this is something this show captures in the initial uh, episode that is as uh, try as hard as they want to keep it a secret. There is no way to keep something this Mm -hmm. massive from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yet at the time, and and given this was sort of the height of the uh, uh, sort of Reagan reinvestment in Cold War tensions, there really was a feeling of being scared. Even though it was a nuclear power plant and not a nuclear bomb, mm-hmm. we were still still sort of living under this notion of, uh, you know, a threat at any moment to be sort of obliterated by some kind of yeah. nuclear disaster. Yeah, and that, you know that kind of connects to one 
other thing that's interesting, and Masha Gessen gets at this, is that some of the show is based on a book called Voices from Chernobyl by Svetlana Alexievich. And one of the interesting things that she, and I think in an interview had pointed out, is that you know, she is someone who did a lot of oral histories about people who lived in the Soviet Union or with them. And unlike other events in Soviet history, like Stalingrad or even the war in Afghanistan, because this Chernobyl happened so close to the end of the Soviet Union, the people who lived through it never kind of got the propaganda to tell them mm, what to true. think. Right. Yeah. Uh, there was no official narrative of it because so so little was told about it at all. Uh, that she found in interviewing the people who lived through it, it was a much richer and kind of deeper experience because they weren't just kind of spouting propaganda. They actually were grappling with what actually happened to them. And it was just a kind of more heartbreaking and rich yeah. series of interviews in, in some of her other books in some ways. Yeah, that is actually a, a, a fascinating book. Um, I remember uh, picking up a copy of that when that came out. And interestingly enough, it's translated by Masha's brother, Keith. So, oh, really? <laughs> which I just discovered uh -huh. in, 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 in looking it up again. Uh, you know, but there is, I think, I, I, I will hesitate to use a word like fascination, but there is this, there is, I kind of think, a, um, sort of a focus on this event, this disaster. It really uh, makes for compelling viewing, as depicted on HBO, as Griffin has, has, has talked about. Uh, but I think even the real life event and what has happened since makes for sort of very compelling follow up. Um, uh, a number of artists have treated it in fiction. Jim Shepard, a National uh, Book Award winning author, wrote a short story called The Zero Meter Diving Team uh, that is about Chernobyl. Mm. You know, there's there's constant sort of updates about what's happening in the exclusion zone as nature right. sort of seems to be, you know, restaking itself or taking a new form. And tourism has spiked in the Chernobyl region. Oh, right, right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. People taking these kind of odd selfies with the disaster site behind them. There was yeah. an article about that it's recently. Very I saw it. Yeah. 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 So what is it you think that sort of draws people back to this? I don't know. I don't know. There's this interesting, let's call it a dichotomy between this desire to get close to documented history. Mm -hmm. um, but that there's also this imaginative fantasy element to it. And mm -hmm. I thought that was what was so interesting about mm -hmm. the miniseries itself, whereas it, it tries to be documentary, it tries to get history right. But at the same time, it relies on the sort of visual and narrative devices of mm -hmm. science fiction. Um, mm -hmm. Dominic, you, I know that you see parallels with Tarkovsky. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, so there's a movie, of course, uh, it, uh, Andrei Tarkovsky, the Russian director, is very well known for called Stalker, which actually was made about six years before Chernobyl. Uh, but in many ways, and, and the essayist Jeff Dyers pointed this out, it seems to prefigure the disaster. There are numerous scenes in Stalker, which is filmed at a derelict Estonian power plant. Mm -hmm. That uh, really in watching the HBO series, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just like what I saw in soccer with men wading through, you know, waist deep water in the in the ruins of a plant uh, with this sort of hovering fear, this hovering anxiety of not really knowing what might be behind the next door or what you are actually tucking, touching when you pick up a mm -hmm. piece of metal or machinery or contaminated graphite as we see yeah. uh, some of the some of the uh, characters in in the HBO series yeah. doing so i think it really speaks to a really deep fear that we have now of political disaster of environmental disaster but i don't think there's reason for despair i don't know there's the 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 series uh, i won't give away the ending but it really it tries to stage this very dramatic success of the truth over mm -hmm. the lies the sense mm -hmm. of human capacity and potential uh, to reverse our political and environmental situation yeah yeah 
I do think one interesting thing about the movie is that, or sorry, the miniseries is that even though we know what happened, it's, it keeps your attention so yeah. well and creates suspense. I mean, it's, it's a little like watching the Titanic. Like, you, know, you, like you, you, you know how, the, you know what the end's going to be. You know, yeah. we're still here. Uh, we know, you know, half of Eastern Europe wasn't destroyed right. in, mm. you know, in this nuclear accident. And it continues to have this interesting place in post-Soviet life in Russia. Yeah. I guess Putin only... Like only every five years we'll acknowledge this happened, uh, you know, like mm. on important anniversaries. Mm -hmm. And there's also a, like a Soviet uh, – uh, sorry, a, a Russian version of this story that they're making that uh, kind of blames it on American spies who were kind of plants at the, the nuclear facility yeah. and caused it. So it wasn't the Soviets' fault. It wasn't the system's fault. It wasn't mm. even the fault of individual Russians. It was really the fault of American spies. American spies. So it's, it's kind of caught up in this – you know, our – continually weird relationship with Russia as a country even. Commonweal is the leading independent Catholic journal of public affairs, religion, literature, and the arts. We offer a number of subscription options. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the subscribe link. In her new book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee, Casey Sepp looks back on the case of murder and vigilantism in rural Alabama in the 1970s, a sensational series of events that got the attention of Harper Lee. By then long famous for To Kill a Mockingbird, she took up the story with an idea of writing her own kind of in-cold-blood true crime book. Casey recently spoke with Anthony Domestico about the case, about Harper Lee's attempt to write about it, and about our general fascination with true crime, a fascination shared by no less than W.H. Auden, among other literary luminaries. Thanks so much for joining me today, Casey. We're here to talk about your new book from Knopf, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and The Last Trial of Harper Lee. And in a sense, it's a true crime book kind of squared because you tell the story of a series of strange deaths in rural Al Alabama in the 1970s, but you also tell the story of Harper Lee trying and failing to tell the story of those deaths. And before we get to the specifics of your book and this history, I wondered if we could talk about the genre of true crime, so why we read it and why we write it. I know from past conversations between the two of us, we've, we've talked about our shared love of W.H. Auden. And uh, in his wonderful 1948 essay, The Guilty Vicarage, uh, he talks about why he loves detective fiction. And Auden writes, I suspect that the typical reader of detective stories is, like myself, a person who suffers from a sense of sin. And then he goes on to say that the pleasure of reading detective fiction comes from, quote, the fantasy of being restored to the Garden of Eden, to a state of innocence where he may know love as love and not as the law. And I wonder if you think that Auden's claims here apply to true crime as a genre as well, so that we read it or write it because it somehow appeals to our sense of sinfulness or guilt and that somehow it also assuages this sense of guilt. So I guess my question is, Casey, do you feel sinful? And is that why you've chosen to write this book? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Tony, if only because, you know, more often in our lives outside of the sanctuary, we should be asked the degree to which we feel sinful or need 
expatiation. <laughs> um, and certainly when it comes to our reading and viewing habits, but yeah, I mean, that's so wonderful. Thanks for, for bringing Auden into it. And, you know, the guilty vicarage is a really interesting essay and you're right to point out that he's talking about detective fiction. So he's talking about fiction and not nonfiction, but obviously one of the reasons true crime has become so popular is that now the nonfiction genre kind of preys on the techniques and the style of fiction. And it's why people find it so engaging and interesting these days. And, you know, I think there's a, there's a kind of secular explanation for its popularity. And it goes something like this, that, you know, we like to read about these things and figure out, you know, how we can keep them from happening to ourselves, or we read them in order to understand, you know, how criminals, people so unlike ourselves, operate in the world and what motivates them. And, you know, I, I love the way in which Auden sort of rejects that secular explanation and says instead that, you know, rightfully, we, we have something in common with all of the characters, and including the criminals. And, you know, that's not unrelated to the way that some secular audiences encounter these things. It's certainly the case that, you know, we can identify a sinful but delight in the knowledge that someone else's sin exceeds our own. Right. You know, I mean, this the, the book that I've just written doesn't doesn't involve an everyday criminal. It involves someone who is alleged to have truly transgressed the boundaries of human relations and, and in fact murdered several family members. So it's not as if most of us in reading would, would feel that that was something we were capable of doing and probably not something we'd ever done. But so that's to say, you know, he, he has something in common with these secular readers who just sort of want to look at, you know, the worst case scenario or the worst example of the human species. And yet again, what's so beautiful about Auden is the degree to which he says, no, no, we, we read these because we see something of ourselves and that, that it in, engages these, these notions we have of the self and maybe even to your point, assuages some of them and allows us to imagine, you know, if, if there can be order and beauty restored to these kinds of stories, which is to say they can be solved or someone can be held responsible or family members or communities can see justice, then maybe the same is true of these other kinds of lesser sins or more quotidian kinds of guilt. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, do I read, do, am I interested because I'm sinful? Of course I am, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, and you nicely kind of ward off the, the more purely consolatory or distancing reading through the epigraph, right, where you talk about um, the epigraph is from Harper Lee, and it's we are bound by a common anguish. And I think, right, that's when she's talking about her relationship with Truman Capote, her her childhood friend. But really, that is the the kind of frame for the entire book that despite the the deep and apparent differences between the three characters and the three stories you tell, there are common threads of anguish and suffering and pain experienced and pain dealt out uh, by all three of these characters. Yeah, it's so kind of you to notice that, Tony. And the, the truth is, I, I had an, a friend of mine read the book quite early, and she lobbied quite strongly for that, for common, <laughs> common anguish to be the title. And mm. it certainly belongs there at the front, because I think you're right, it is a way to justify putting these lives in conversation with one another and to kind of animate the structure of the book. But yes, I, I think for some readers, it will feel like a kind of familiar and and maybe even matter of fact or plain statement about human relationships. And so, yes, I was very grateful. She says it quite oddly. It's very late in her life. And 
she and Capote, I mean, I, I, I love writing about friendship and she and Capote have this strange and odd and enduring friendship. You know, they meet one another quite young as children and they move to New York at different times, but they know one another there and they collaborate on the reporting that became In Cold Blood. And um, they're almost like siblings. It is this lifelong relationship. And she agrees in 1976 to go with him to this interview. You know, it's years into her own kind of deliberate silence. And, you know, she won't do interviews to talk about her own work, but he doesn't want to do this interview alone. And so she comes along and, you know, they, they're talk they're telling stories from childhood and they're talking about this small town in Alabama where they were raised. And I just, this, this overly saturated quote, you know, gets recorded in People Magazine of all places. So again, we should be careful about presupposing where we can find moral wisdom, because here was this quote in the pages of People, a profile of Capote. And, you know, his life is decadent and probably, you know, not the not the stuff of moral memoirs. You know, he's already very deep into a drinking and substance abuse problem. And he really can't get his life together. But she says this, this incredibly beautiful and strange thing about the the two of them. And so right, it felt appropriate to lift up for the the kind of way I wanted to look at all the, the people whose lives she interacted with and, and who lived through this original crime story. So it was very nice of you to notice it. I was quite grateful when I found it. And then also just to the point of her her own moral seriousness. It's it's one of these quotes that seems to say everything and nothing at all. Yeah. And as as much as I would love to simply continue talking about the metaphysical and theological valences <laughs> of true crime, we probably should take a step back just for a second and give our listeners who might not have yet had the chance to read the book a sense for these three braided stories that we've referred to. So your your book really does consist of three stories. The story of Reverend Willie Maxwell, a man suspected of killing five family members for insurance money in Alabama in the 1970s. The story of Tom Radney, a yellow dog Democrat and attorney who first represented Maxwell and then eventually represented the man who murdered Maxwell um, vigilante style in 1977. And then uh, the third story is of Harper Lee, famous, of course, as the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, but also famous as uh, a writer like Ralph Ellison, who never completed a, a second book. And you tell the story of her trying to complete a second book in the form of first a nonfiction narrative and then a novel version of the, the Maxwell events and trial. Um, but I wonder if you could just take a step back and give our listeners a, a sense for the reverend, who he was, what he was suspected of, and why he got off in the way that he did. Yeah, I mean, so Willie Maxwell was born in 1925 in, in a small town um, in Coosa County, Alabama. And I think that his preaching career is representative of a certain kind of rural ministry. So he um, was ordained at a church he'd grown up in and eventually got some um, theological education, but mostly was was called to the pulpit and recognized for um, his moving preaching and his erudition and grasp of the gospel. And so he really made an impression and he added to that kind of intellectual impression with a, a sartorial distinction that, you know, these these fancy suits that were just too fancy for that time and place. And so people really remember that alongside his preaching. And he was a part-time 
preacher, um, which is to say that even working with several parishes, um, it was not his primary vocation. He worked at a rock quarry. He worked at a um, textile mill there in this part of the country. And he also, for a long time, worked in the logging industry in this kind of low stakes way. Um, pulp wooding is the, is the so you, you would cut short wood and it would be sent to a pulp mill, which would in all likelihood be made into paper, but cardboard bags and things were made this way too. And so you know, he represents a certain kind of rural preacher who, you know, whose whose faith is obvious and whose compelling way of preaching the gospel was appealing, but um, who could never quite make a living at it. And so I, I bring up those financial troubles just to um, animate what, what then happened, which is his first wife was found murdered in 1970. He had these sizable insurance policies on her. He was charged with her murder and eventually tried for it. But around the edges of that trial, he collected, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in insurance policies, some of which had been taken out just before she was murdered. So as opposed to the way we, we tend to buy insurance now, where you might buy $100,000 policy or one $1 million policy at that time, he was cobbling together these you know, smaller denominations, a thousand, three thousand, five thousand, paying very little for them. And because she was murdered so soon after, not even paying the renewal fees. So while that was happening and the state was building a case against him for the murder, the neighbor of his who was supposed to be the state's star witness changed her testimony and provided an alibi for the reverend. And not long after she testified on his behalf in court, they were married. And then not long after that, she was found dead under very similar circumstances to the the first Mrs. Maxwell. And the same thing happened with a brother and a nephew, um, and then eventually a stepdaughter of his. And so around the edges of all of these deaths and these lucrative insurance policies, people started to tell stories about the Reverend Maxwell. And, and they were not the kinds of stories they had told about him when he first took to the pulpit. You know, people really did start to fear him. And in an effort to account for why the police couldn't um, make an arrest or, or couldn't get a conviction, people started to say that he wasn't just a Baptist minister, but that he was a voodoo priest. And that he was using, you know, voodoo spells or charms to get one over on the, you know, toxicology lab and the uh, sheriff's department and the Alabama Bureau of Investigation. And when need be, he could do the same thing on a jury. And, you know, if he wanted to, he could do it to any of his neighbors. And, you know, the, the specifics of that were everything from poisons to, you know, poisonous powders and then you know the rumors just proliferated from there so but but they come out of this what will be familiar to folks who grew up in the south just this very familiar kind of rural ministry and quite sweetly he would do funerals or marriage ceremonies or whatever needed to be done and um it wasn't quite a formal circuit but um he worked in you know several counties around this part of the state and he would be invited to lead revivals at a neighboring parish or you know he might be called into one local church to just lead a sunday service because their pastor was away and so um you know he had a straightforward ministry for for much of the 60s and 70s and and was well known for that and to some extent insulated from the early allegations about his family life because here he was a man of the cloth and you know who wants to think that a man of the cloth has murdered his wife in fact we'd much prefer to think of him as job and as these crimes proliferated in these 
mysterious deaths sort of piled up one after another. In fact, the, the reverend started to say that he was haunted and that it was some specter or evil force um, conspiring against him. But of course, this other body of rumors grew up around him and people took refuge in um, this you know, kind of supernatural explanation for, for why he was able to do what he was doing. Yeah, and, and you touched upon two different and really interesting kind of micro histories within the book where you talk about, you offer this really fascinating and rich account of what it would have been like to be a kind of itinerant rural preacher in Alabama in the 1970s and also the long and, and complicated and not particularly well-documented history of voodoo in the South and in, in Alabama in particular. Yeah, and it's quite interesting. The There's a lot of good contemporary scholarship on voodoo these days. And right, I tell this kind of micro history because I'm partly accounting for why we don't know more about the origins of voodoo in this country. And But, but there is some good contemporary scholarship. And one of the most fascinating things I learned and that I try to represent in the book, um, because it's relevant to this part of Alabama, Coosa and Tallapoosa County have very different demographic makeups. But the kind of two salient things that contemporary scholarship tells a convincing story about with voodoo is, first of all, it was always interracial. And so so quite um, interestingly, in this part of Alabama, you would always have had black practitioners for the most part, but but a lot of white customers, as it were. And and that's important to the Reverend story because of course these voodoo rumors didn't just proliferate in the black community. They were very much a part of the way that even the upper class folks in Tallapoosa County, the white folks over on that side of the county line, talked about this story and made sense of it. So that interracial appeal is really relevant. But the other thing that was surprising to me is how syncretic voodoo was from the time it arrived in New Orleans until it spread around the country. And again, I think that's relevant because at first it, it seemed confusing to me that a reverend would be accused of this. And when you go look at the um, early voodoo communities and, and even to some extent contemporary root working practitioners, they are often affiliated with a Christian community and they are deriving some of their iconography and some of their prayers and a lot of their spiritual practices from Christianity. And that made it a little easier to understand why you would have someone who was basically a Baptist minister in good standing you know who who could then be associated with this this other kind of spirituality so when you go looking through in particular new orleans when you go looking through you know early 20th century voodoo records you find people were conducting some of their voodoo ceremonies in churches or that um, voodoo communities tried to legitimate themselves by by opening churches and taking over church real estate so it's really it's quite it's it's quite a compatible system of belief and one that could sort of you know take from Christianity or take from Catholicism in ways that it needed to and marry it to these other kinds of African spiritual practices too or Caribbean spiritual practices. So yes, it was quite interesting and and again it just made the things that were being said about the Reverend much more plausible. I'm interested in your decision to to give almost one third of the book over to Maxwell's attorney, Tom Radney as well. And so if you could give our listeners a, a little bit of a sense for, for who Radney is and, and why he was essential to the story that you wanted to tell. 
Yeah, so Tom Radney is a basically a, a peer of the Reverend Maxwell and Harper Lee, but he's born in a small town, Wadley, Alabama, and he moves to Alexander City where these crimes took place in order to open a law practice and his legal career is distinguished enough. Um, he was really the kind of go-to trial lawyer in this part of the state. So both when the Reverend needed criminal representation, he relied on Tom Radney. And then when the vigilante who murdered the Reverend needed a lawyer, he too relied on Tom. He was sort of you know the go-to guy if you were facing serious criminal charges. But he also had a thriving civil practice. And so he was tangled up in all of these insurance claims. And so he's really in, in the mix of all that. But the real reason that Tom felt to me like he merited um, such a large part of the book and why ultimately he is this middle part of the story is because he also, alongside his legal career, he um, was an incredibly ambitious young man and had planned to be governor of Alabama, maybe president of the United States. And, you know, he had this thwarted political career alongside that. And what was interesting to me is Tom came of age really around the time that the, the two main political parties in the country were sorting out their beliefs on race. And here's this young guy in Alabama who's a Democrat because everybody is in the South at that time. But he sticks with the Democratic Party, even after the Dixiecrats, and his own views on race are quite progressive. He's hugely motivated by the example of the Kennedy family. And, you know, he's a JFK supporter. And at the 68 convention, he's trying to get Ted Kennedy to run. And, you know, he he leans into the progressive and integrative policies of the Democratic Party. At the same time, George Wallace is thriving in Alabama, and the rest of the Democrats are about to abandon the party en masse. And I felt that Tom's story was really interesting. So obviously, the Reverend tells a story about religion and the ways that we use it to make sense of our lives. And Harper Lee tells this story about literature and how storytelling itself is meaningful to us and shapes the way we think about our lives. And, you know, Tom, to me, felt like the the obvious rejoinder to those, and that's politics. And that is the big structural forces that act on any given life and that create the circumstances under which we thrive or fail. You know, Tom has had hundreds of trials over the years, but I dig into this one because the same issues that, you know, kind of are at work in the moral engine of To Kill a Mockingbird are at work in that trial. And it's very much about vigilanteism and how we decide, you know, who the law applies to and how rigorously we will uphold the, you know, normal scrutiny we apply to any crime. You you touched a, a bit on this, but I'm interested in transitioning now to the third figure, uh, probably the, certainly the figure who listeners will be most familiar with, Harper Lee. And so Lee publishes To Kill a Mockingbird famously, successfully in 1960. And 17 years later is when the trial happens. And you you touched a, a bit on what might have attracted Lee to this story in the first place, which is its resemblance to the kind of story she talked about in To Kill a Mockingbird, a story that has to do with race and has to do with justice and has to do with vigilanteism. But what what 
besides that, and besides the fact that her her father was himself an attorney, what was it about this story that particularly appealed to Lee? Do you think? Yeah, it's a great question, and obviously, one you know, in in my dream world, I would have found you know the ten page excursus from Lee on her <laughs> motivations. <laughs> so I, I should state outright, you know, ab- absent that, what we have are some letters that she wrote to friends around the same time and things she said to people in town and the kind of relationship, you know, we were talking about her friendship with Capote earlier, the kind of relationship, antagonistic relationship she had to this true crime writing he had done in In Cold Blood. So there's a batch of letters that are really interesting at Yale that Lee wrote to Capote's fact checker at The New Yorker. And the two of them were sort of in a position to know more about the transgressions of In Cold Blood. And that's everything from, you know, kind of minor details that are massaged to scenes that are elaborated on kind of more than the sources might ever have provided evidence for. And then in some instances, probably most shockingly, just fabricated. So the end of In Cold Blood is this sort of moving scene where Agent Dewey, the heroic investigator who helped solve the murders is grieving at the grave of the cluttered daughter with a friend of hers. And and that, for instance, is not something that Capote ever witnessed. He just used it to seam up the story. And, you know, Lee writes these letters and throughout her life was critical of those decisions and expressed real dubiousism about this category Capote had claimed to have invented called the nonfiction novel. And I think for her, those were always distinctive things. And so, you know, bringing that scrutiny, which which I believe was rightfully applied to that book and which was probably energized by, you know, a lot of, when In Cold Blood was published, it then just, it, it boomed an entire genre of this kind, this sort of prestigious crime writing and purportedly nonfiction. So I think, you know, the, the tiny, however tiny her frustration with In Cold Blood, she was forced to experience it over and over again in other books and other works of journalism. And so she seems to have been motivated not only by the particulars of the Maxwell case, and and those aren't just the kind of thematic elements of the story. It turns out that Alexander City, where this trial was, is a place where Lee had some family. So um, she had a niece who had moved to this town and whose husband owned a motel. And so, you know, Lee just kind of matter of factly had a place to stay and that niece helped arrange a cabin on the lake for her. And, you know, it was obviously helpful. So she had all of these particular reasons for being interested in the Maxwell case, but she had these kind of generic reasons for wanting to try and write a true crime book. And, you know, that, that I think is mostly her frustration with the genre and her desire to sort of police the boundaries between fiction and nonfiction and responsible reportage and speculation And I think beyond that, it's kind of sweet. You know, you mentioned her father was a lawyer, her sister was a lawyer too, but she was also just by her, by her own account, quote, intrigued with crime. And, you know, that was everything from Sherlock Holmes to detective stories as a kid. She and her sisters just devoured true crime books. Her older sister, Alice, was obsessed with the Leopold and Loeb case, which she'd lived through as a young woman. And quite surprisingly, Lee's other sister, who who lived in a tiny town near the Georgia line, had been following 
at one point her own murderous preacher who was accused of killing two wives. And, you know, I, we're laughing because, of course, it is this kind of dark comedy. But, um, you know, there's her sister bird dogging that case. I think they were just interested in this stuff. And so it's hard to know. You know, I don't want to overstate the certainty with which I report her interest in the Maxwell case because there's limited documentary evidence, but it does seem to fit into this pattern of stories that interested her. And it came at this critical moment in her life where 17 years, you know, you brought up Ellison at the, at the beginning of this conversation, 17 years is a long time to have gone without a book. And I think it's actually quite possible that, you know, this was quote, too good a story to pass up. And and here it came at this very moment where she needed to try again and she needed to produce another book. Yeah. And in some of the most gripping and also saddest bits of the book are your really patient reconstruction of all of the research and the writing and the struggling that Lee did with first the nonfiction version, because she, you know, she tried as best she could to wrestle this story and her incredibly meticulous notes into some kind of a coherent book-shaped thing for quite some time until she then decided, right, that she would maybe turn it into a novel, right? Despite the fact that she had been interested in policing these boundaries, ultimately she decided, I don't know, I can't stay within that precinct. I need to migrate over to the novel, the novel territory and, and fictionalize this instead. And, and you have a, an account of reading you know, the, is it a page of the, of the, yeah, so supposedly a couple of pages. Right. So, so the, right. So she comes to town and she, you know, is beating the drum of I'm doing this work of journalism and I need the facts. And, you know, she pays a thousand dollars for a copy of the court transcript and she does all these interviews and she dutifully types up her notes and she's even carrying around a cassette recorder. And then, Right. Seems to have lapsed into this kind of more familiar mode of, well, maybe I'll write a novel. And I think that even there, it's it's it makes sense because it's not as if she didn't think Capote should have written about the clutter case. I think she yeah. just had in mind something like an American tragedy, which is just more straightforwardly a novel. And, you know, that's to say, of course, novels are informed by real life and true events. I mean, her own isn't entirely autobiographical, but it operates in an autobiographical gear. And so, right, she seems to have given up on true crime and tried to write this this is this other kind of work, a novel where some of the names are changed, but not all. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about whether that would be kind of an expression of failure, like not having been able to do the one kind of writing or just a kind of optimism about, well, maybe this book would be better as a fictional book. It's certainly, you know, I think like a lot of nonfiction writers, I obviously at certain moments in trying to figure out what the Reverend had done and why he'd done it, boy, did I wish I could invent. Or even, you know, when I just gave you that sort of tortured answer, carefully telling you, you know, the, the sources for my understanding of Lee's work on this case and the absences or silences in the historical record, you know, obviously a lot of people who are writing scrupulous nonfiction accounts of things sort of dream of the opportunity to fictionalize and, and do a version where they have all the answers and there aren't gaps or speculations or um, silences. And so, right, it doesn't feel that surprising that she might have tried it. And she had been trying to write novels over and over again in the 60s. So Mockingbird had come out in 1960 and Ever since then, she had been trying to find her way through a second novel. 
So it's not so surprising that she would try it. Yeah, and and again, quite quite sadly, but also I think in in your account quite beautifully, she also ends up, of course, failing to to write the novel version of this as well. And you have a really moving section in which you talk about Lee's writer's block, and and you're very careful to say that writer's block is a symptom, not a disease, and that we're never going to be able to, as you're saying about something else, give the kind of two paragraph version of why Lee failed to write a second book and why she even more specifically failed to write this second book. Right. But I was wondering if you could just walk us through some of the reasons that it seems Lee struggled so much uh, to complete this book or, or a second book generally. You talk about structural reasons, you talk about personal reasons. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, Tony, I'm so grateful again, you brought up the epigraph to the book. And I think that I think that this is actually in a funny way, the hardest thing that this section of the book was the hardest for me to write. I love writing. I'm very grateful to get to do it for a living. I, I find it fun and I, I don't find it to be a struggle. And Harper Lee had a very different vision of the vocation of writer. And she really did see it in this kind of medieval mystic way of, you know, you're called to suffer and it's suffering and you, you know, spend every day alone doing it and a struggle is what's called for. And it's just not my experience at all. And yeah. There's a, there's a great, there's a great quote you have where she describes writing, not necessarily an exorcism not necessarily of the writer's demon but of his divine discontent <laughs> i was thinking yes if i, you if know, I think I mean, of writing if i thought of writing that like, way i would never get anything done either yes or right i would find another job so <laughs> yeah. right i think you know again we're laughing and i don't mean to because i it it was all serious for her it wasn't put on it wasn't you know it wasn't to um, exaggerate her experience, it was incredibly real. And I think that for that reason, right, I tried to be very responsible and, you know, based on correspondence and interviews with people who knew her, just kind of a small number of people who she ongoingly talked to about these things. But right, she really was just a, a miserable writer. And I think that for that reason, writer's block is an especially complicated thing. And, you know, sometimes in a film, writer's block is dramatized of, you know, you wander around the room, or you watch television, or you go for a walk. And, you know, in Harper Lee's case, it just seems again, to have been more serious and more self-punishing than that. And that is why, right, you know, there, there are particular frustrations of the Maxwell case. It is this tricky story. It has a lot of complexities. She told someone at one point that she'd grown frustrated with the book because it was just turning out to be a tome of like life insurance history. So, right. So she hadn't quite found the story she thought she had and facts were in short supply and all of these things. But on top of that, she seems to have lapsed back into the experience she had in the 60s post-Mockingbird, which is she's a perfectionist. So, you know, she really can slave over a single page and then decide it's no good. Um, or having written 300 pages can impulsively put it down the incinerator. So she was a destroyer and, again, extremely self-critical. Um, she also, for much of her adult life, struggled with a drinking problem, and that was exacerbated by the frustrations of writing and the expectations of her publisher and her agents and the kind of world at large. She, as best, you know, again, I'm not a clinician, and I kind of chafe at the idea that we could ever 
apply labels to someone posthumously or diagnose someone we never met where there isn't a kind of robust medical record. But people who knew her well say that she was emotionally volatile. And sometimes that was wonderful because she could just be exuberant. Um, and sometimes, you know, that was horrible because she was depressive and this kind of, you know, vicious cycle of drinking and wallowing or not being able to work or working too hard and whatever kind of variation or rotation on that came into being, that really seems to have been where she found herself. And so, right, I, I, I wish that there were the straightforward answer, you know, Harper Lee couldn't write another book because X, but of course, if there were an X, she herself probably could have solved it. <laughs> you know, these were dark times for her. And again, you know, when you start a book about an alleged serial killer, or you're writing about, you know, the failure of the civil rights movement in the South, you know, you think those are going to be the anguished and heartbreaking stories. And in fact, equally moving for me was the story of this writer and and her failure to live up to her potential and to fulfill her promise and to make her peace with her chosen vocation. Well, you start off the book proper with um, a really lovely sentence. You write, enough water like enough time can make anything disappear. And one of the great gifts of this book is how many things you unearth and make alive again, whether that's the history of the insurance industry in America or the life of Harper Lee and the, the life of her struggle with herself and with her writing. And it's a, it's a really superb book. I, I strongly recommend it to all of our listeners. And uh, Casey, thanks so much again for, for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, absolutely, Tony. Such an honor. Have a favorite article you've read from a recent issue? Let us know and join the conversation online on Facebook at facebook.com slash commonwealthmagazine, on Twitter at commonwealthmag, and on Instagram. Felix Cepeda is a New York-based activist who works to raise awareness on a range of issues, including the sanctuary movement. Recently, Commonweal's Nicole Ann Lobo talked with Felix about his work, about the roots of the sanctuary movement in the United States, and about how the Catholic Church could take a more active role in welcoming immigrants and refugees. Felix, it's great to have you with us, and I was wondering if you could first tell us a bit more about your background and what led you to get involved with your work. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, well, my parents are uh, immigrants uh, from the Dominican Republic, and um, they were Catholic, you know, and, and, and so th that kind of started everything inside the church, uh, especially in the Dominican Republic, mm -hmm. just seeing the poverty and seeing how uh, there are many Catholics there involved and, and fighting social justice, social injustices. And that, that um, I grew up in that, pretty much in that environment of theology of liberation and, and a lot, lot of the nuns and priests uh, of my parish, which is uh, St. Vincent de Paul people. Yeah, great. So it's, it's a big, you know, it's a parish. The spirit of the parish is uh, involved with the poor. So I, I grew up in that environment. And, and, um, and here in New York, too, also the parish I, I was a part of when I was a kid, uh, the Piarist uh, uh, fathers are there. And they, their charisma is to work with uh, kids, uh, poor kids, you know, through education. Right. And so I've kind of always been influenced by all these Catholic groups that that have uh, that their charisma has been to, to be close to the poor. That's great. 
I think in New York City, especially, there's like all the different inequalities. It really comes out. It feels like it's such a microcosm of the entire world. For it's, anyway, I'll hold you level here. But um, mm-hmm. I I want to talk to you more about your time in the Dominican Republic as well. So your first generation in the United States, mm-hmm. and your parents are immigrants from the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And you were with the Jesuits in the Dominican Republic for a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Could you talk more about your time with them? Yeah, I. You know, growing up in the church, um, that's always a vocation that's offered to you, right? <laughs> Be getting married or, or, or being a priest or, mm-hmm. or brother. So I, I, I wrestled with it for a while. And and, um, and there came a moment where I decided, well, I think it's time. And, and so I joined the, the Jesuits in the Dominican Republic. And I was there probably for five, six years yeah. uh, with them. And um, and I was a... Uh, it was a great experience yeah. overall, especially doing the spiritual exercises of saying Ignatius yeah. for 30 days. And you know, not everyone gets that chance, right, oh, yeah. to take 30 days to, to, to be in prayer and get right. to know more about yourself sure. and more about God. So that was a like, great experience. And overall, there are also very good Jesuits there uh, who are involved with the poor. Yeah. So I, I learned a lot from them and their passion for social justice. So so overall, it was a very good uh, experience. I had to leave, you know, the Jesuits eventually because they asked me. Oh. <laughs> To, to leave, because yeah. um, I do have issues with obedience. Uh, yeah, I, I think in true. the church, there's different understandings uh, of what that means. Yeah. Sometimes for the bishops or the leadership of congregations, it means like following what they say, every single right. word. And for many of us, it's more about following what God wants, and, right. and especially God who speaks through the suffering of, of his people. Yeah. I am very passionate about issues that um, affect women. You know, I think women need need a voice in the church, you know, especially voting, you know, vo- voting rights and yeah. being able to, to celebrate the mass. And I, I believe passionately uh, about, especially where I come from, the Dominican Republic, m- on Sundays there isn't a priest around. <laughs> and many of the neighborhoods wow. around from, it's women leading. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. there's no priest. Yeah. So, so it's women leading these, uh, well, the church doesn't call them a mass. No, right. it, it calls them a celebration of the word. But yeah. regular people don't know the difference. No, regular no. people are like, oh, yeah, I, I, my mass is celebrated by a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. re- re- and a lot of places in the world it's like that. Like yeah. just, just not enough priests to, especially the Dominican Republic. It's a little country, yeah. but most of the people are Catholic. So, right. so it's, I'm talking like you know, it's eight million people, and most of them are, are Catholics. So there's just not enough priests around. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of communities, it's women who are leading, and and regular people don't know the difference. You know? Yeah. How do you feel like your time with the Jesuits affected the activism that you're that you're involved with now? Yeah, I, I think, um, um, again, Ignatius was practical, right? He was involved in the world, but he put a lot of attention to, to prayer and, and you know, kind of like looking for trying to figure out God's will. I, I think that was his main passion, you know, like, yeah. like what do you want of me? From you know, from me, God, right. uh, and so I think yeah, for sure. Like I remember when I was in the seminary, I would talk about like women's ordination, and people, and some of the women would be like, "Why do you talk about these things?" And I'm like, "Well, they're, they're the result of my prayer." And a lot of them would be like, a lot of people would be scandalized, like that that can be the result of prayer, yeah. you know, like women's ordination. That's so like, evil, you know, like, right. like it's not. I'm like, yeah, like like you can't you can't <laughs> you can't limit what God wants. You know, you pray and you, you shut up and you listen, and and then you know, who knows what's gonna come out of that? Sure. But, but sadly, we have this idea. Idea that that out of prayer, it's only like you know, certain things that can come out. You know, you know like you, you you never know what God was going to ask was going to ask of you. No. And listening to the suffering of people too, I think God speaks through the suffering of of people. Who knows what He's going to? For sure. And in, in my work, I think that's what it is. I, I try every day to to you know at least a few minutes of silence and and ask you know like what do you want from me? You know. Yeah. And sometimes I, I wish I, I could do work that's more safe and more like I don't like none of this. Like I hate going to jail. I've been to jail a few times. 
times for civil disobedience, you know, and then there's nothing new in the Catholic Church, you know, there's Daniel Berrigan, there's Dorothy Day, there's Cesar Chavez. So we, we have a long tradition of Catholics who, who felt that God is calling them to even break the rules sometimes, even this in, in the sanctuary movement, too. Yeah. That's what people are doing. Of you know, course, that's, right. that's what churches are, are doing. You know, yeah. They're opening up their churches, protecting people, even though the law says they can't do it. You know, They're still doing it. Right. So there's always been a tradition of, of uh, you know, it's not necessarily people wanting to break the law, but just that God's law is, is above right. you know, the law of human beings. And it doesn't mean because something is legal, it's right. Sadly, oh. you know, it should be right. And so sadly, it doesn't mean that. that, that so we sometimes we are called to break the law. And, and But I think for a lot of people, it's surprising, oh, you know, where is that coming? That's coming from communism and socialism. And not necessarily, it's coming from from prayer. Yeah. <laughs> Primarily, I, mean, I am a Christian, you know, I am religious. And for me, it comes from, you know, my call comes from the Bible and yes. you know, from like prayer. But they're always kind of surprised, like, you know, like, oh, I thought you were like a Marxist, you know. I thought your passion came from Marx, you know. And I'm yeah. like, well, well, you know, I admire some things, but not, not you know, that's not like my main thing. I come from a different tradition, you know, it's just different. You know, it's it's funny you say that because actually, like as you're talking, um, you remind me so much of the same things that um, Oscar Romero was was saying in his writings, right? Where people would accuse him of being a Marxist or of being a communist, but really, um, the imperative for what he was preaching says it's completely rooted in the gospel, mm-hmm. which itself is a radical text, right? And I think that's something that we're sort of rediscovering the need to turn towards every day, especially with Pope Francis, who mm-hmm. has this radical call to care for others and. Uh, it's like sort of a refocusing of church priorities that I think plays out differently in different areas of the world. And certainly in our diocese in New York, it seems to be a little bit more stagnant right now, but we can get into that later. But um, anyway, so I guess we can just go right into talking about sanctuary churches. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking back to the roots of the sanctuary movement in the United States. The movement first began in the 1980s in response to the many Central American refugees who were leaving their native countries in search of safe haven in the U.S., And certain federal immigration policies at that time made obtaining asylum really hard for Central Americans. So at its peak, over 500 congregations in the states declared themselves to be sanctuaries, which meant they would provide shelter, protection, material goods, and often legal advice to Central American refugees. And it was also not one denomination in particular. Many denominations were part of this, both Protestant and Catholic. So... Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the sanctuary movement today is building off of that legacy from the 1980s. And also at a very base level, what does it mean to take sanctuary in a church? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, um, and the whole concept of sanctuary is like ancient. Right, right. right. It's, yes, it's like, of like, course. It's like, I remember speaking to a rabbi and he's like, well, that's actually really old. Yeah. It's not just the, the 60s. I always yeah. talk about the 60s you know, and, the, and, the, and the original sanctuary. He's like, yeah, but we think about a sanctuary is a concept that's ancient, you know, yeah. where churches um, and synagogues, especially in the, in the Jewish times, right. you know, w- w- would offer sanctuary to, to people. So it's really ancient. And of course, as you're saying, the, this this old sanctuary movement is the inspiration for the new one, you know, where, where people look and look to the past and see all the great work that was done. Yeah. And and today there's a need again for that, where, where churches are, are, are have to protect people. And right around here, actually, we're really near Riverside Church. Right. And Riverside Church was one of the sanctuary churches back in the original movement. Oh, wow. And and it's a sanctuary church today. Um, a few, a few uh, maybe a year ago, there was someone there. Yes. Uh, in sanctuary. So so there are people who are in public sanctuary where everyone knows about it. Yeah. And then some people are in private sanctuary. where, where and, and that depends a lot on, on the people. Sometimes they right. don't want that press. Yeah. And it's hard like, that you have to go live in a church. 
you know, lock yourself in a church. That's as hard <laughs> as it is. Yeah, of course. So sometimes I just don't want to deal with all, all the others' media. And I get that. I respect that. Yeah. But there are around, I think, 50 or 60 public cases okay. in the U.S. Wow. Of people who publicly have said, we're here in this church. You know, we're not leaving. They're trying to deport us. It's unjust. And so we're here. So basically what it means is, the, the, I always tell this to people who, who are thinking about sanctuary, is that um, the government can deport you. Like the government can go in a church and deport you if they want it to. Yeah. There's no law. That the, that you know forbids the, the government uh, from doing that. Right. W- what happens is that, is, that, is that there's an internal policy uh, in the government, you know, ICE, uh, that that recommends not doing it. You know, because it doesn't look good. It's PR. You know, yeah. for them it's PR. It doesn't look good for them to go in a church and and especially usually it's moms and dads yeah. with kids in there. Yeah. So it looks really bad for them. So so that's basically why they don't do it. Mm-hmm. it uh, um, right now there are like again fifty or sixty public cases <laughs> of sanctuary, and no, not once has a government gone in there to uh, arrest anyone. Oh wow! And that's and it's great. and it's been like um, there are people there who have been in sanctuary at least two years. So the government has respected that, especially because of PR. You know, and, and but there is no law like if they wanted to do it today, right? They'll do it. Like they like it. so, it's important for people to know that. Uh, um. So so, but it, it is very important because of that. There are a few people who have been able to keep fighting. You know, with lawyers while they're in the church. And so there are people who have been able to get out of the church. Yeah. There are people who, who who have been able to get a you know green card. And so it sometimes it works, you know. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it doesn't, you know. So there's still people there who have been in sanctuary for two years and three years. Mm-hmm. So, but but it is a good it is a strategy that allows you to stay in the country, right. At least, you know, and until you figure out a way how you can get out. But it's very very hard. Like I personally have been able to. I have a lot of Facebook friends, like three women who are in sanctuary, and we're, we're Facebook friends, and we chat. And then here in New York, I've, I'm I'm very close to women who have been in sanctuary too. It's been really hard to see like what they go through because it's like they can't go out. Yeah. You know, so it's hard. It's nice to be in a church. You know, you can pray, right, but, but, right. but it gets kind of old. Yeah, you know? no, I'm sure. <laughs> so, and especially in the here in the city, where a lot of uh, um, there are places that, that offer sanctuary that are more rural areas, and sometimes mm-hmm. have like a big backyard, yeah. or have land, and that's nice because at least if you're stuck in the church, you can like walk around right. in their property, and they have like a nice park or or flowers and that. But here in the in, in the in the city. It's it's hard because most of the churches are in urban areas, right. so they don't have a lot of like you know backyards or flowers. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to be like locked up in inside a building. So it's it's a hard experience. So I, I think the work that the sanctuary churches are doing is really important, right. and uh, because it's it's you know it's saving it's saving lives. You know. So yeah, it, clearly it seems like that this is should be a fundamental imperative for Catholics especially, but all Christian denominations in the U.S. to take part in. What are you doing? Like, What does your activism look like? And how are you trying to get the Catholic Church to really mm-hmm. consider um, making more sanctuary churches or consider opening um, the churches that, are, that they already have to um, people seeking refuge? Uh, we're in, a, we're in a, a specific moment right now where, where immigrants are being targeted more than ever, I feel. Uh, um, and so a lot of these churches usually are Protestant churches who are the ones that have been opening up their space. And I think uh, us as Catholics, uh, again, you know, uh, the work we're doing is great, but I think we can do more. You know, we have so much property. We're one right. of the wealthiest churches in the world, right. yeah, especially here in New York. We have like my parish, my old parish in the Bronx is closed, has been closed for like two years. Yeah. Because, you know, what happened, this whole this whole process that happened here in New York, where they not in New York, all around the U.S., where the Catholic Church has been shutting down uh, its parishes, you know, and consolidating them. And so my parish has been closed for two years and it's a beautiful church. 
It's, it's in good shape. Like that church could be open to offer sanctuary and it's just closed there, like doing nothing. And so there are many churches around the U.S., Catholic churches, that are just closed. And usually what the church does, sadly, is they sell it to developers. So it's, it's to like rich, you know, to rich people. And so I think it's sad because I know, I know we need the money. I know the church is caught up in this abuse scandal, you know, and, and needs money to pay the victims. And I definitely agree that survivors need to get, you know, like money, you know, because, because they deserve it. Yeah, Jesus. But at the same time, it's sad that, that um, a lot of these buildings um, can't be used uh, to offer sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Our proposal was kind of asking every bishop in the U.S. to at least open one. Uh, uh, so in every diocese, there's, there's like 200 parishes, right, yeah. like, or, or 50 parishes. So at least open one church. From, from in your diocese, that's a sanctuary church. Because we understand maybe not every parish can be a, a sanctuary church, but at least that every diocese in the U.S. can have one sanctuary church. I think that's totally possible. Yeah, of course. That is totally possible. Well, okay, so my question is, U.S. bishops like have repeatedly declared, right, that unjust laws cannot be obeyed and that accommodations must be sought on behalf of the faithful. And mm-hmm. in fact, um, the USCCB has been very vocal against so many of um, the unjust immigration policies that have like come out, you know, in this past administration in the past year. But as we know, they've been kind of been going on for a long time. But I guess I'm wondering, you know, given given what the bishops are saying, how has the institutional church in New York itself responded to your work? Like, have you received any support from any from Cardinal Dolan or from anyone else? Or mm-hmm. has the institutional church really been receptive to what you're trying to do? I've always been at, trying to like get a meeting, I, I, at least meet with the people, the leaders of the sanctuary movement here in New York. You know, I've, I've been trying to set up meetings between them, at least, well, talk to them, you know, talk to the leaders and nothing. So there really hasn't been a, a, a like a much openness from their part to, to like speak with with us with the people involved in the in the sanctuary movement. But again, you know, I acknowledge the positive that I know the church does a lot here in New York and around the U.S. and around the world for immigrants. So I do acknowledge that. But yeah. but again, I, I feel um, at least one of our churches here in New York or and around the U.S. can be offered. It can be declared a sanctuary church. I think that's totally possible. Right. I don't see why. It can't happen. In Madrid, in Madrid, Spain, there's a church that's open 24 hours a day. And it's a church for, for, for it's a refuge. You know, it, it's, it's a place where immigrants are welcome. Homeless people can sleep there. And I think the New York Archdiocese is way more powerful than the church in Madrid. Because more, more and more, if you look at Spain, there, there, there aren't that many Catholics around yeah, anymore. No, right. Like more and more, it's becoming uh, very secular. And in New York, too. But I feel like the Catholic church is very strong here in New York. There's still a lot of immigrants who are coming in and filling up the pews. So I think we're a very powerful like local church, the New York Archdiocese, way more than I think the Church of Madrid. And if they're able to to do that, to open at least one of the parishes in the in the in the Archdiocese, twenty four hours, I think we're able to do that too. Because I think we have you know, way more money than than they do, uh, way more people, and and way more power. Yeah. Um. So so I I think that's totally possible here in New York to open a church twenty four hours, um, to to anyone you know homeless people. Um. Because we're also trying to expand the, the concept of sanctuary. What does that mean? Is it is it that just for immigrants? No. So like every anyone who's suffering. That's what churches. Sometimes I've been like really depressed, like walking around, and I see a church. Oh, let me just go in there and pray for a second. And, and I can't. It's locked. It's like crazy, like here in New York and, and the DR 
it's like that too. More and more churches are just locked up. Yeah. So it's like, why do we have let's let's just sell them right and give the money to the poor if we're not going to use them anymore? Yeah. It's really sad that you can't even go in there to pray. I, th- I thought that was the objective of a church, right? The main objective is that it's a place of worship, right? You go in there, and sadly, most of these churches are just locked up during mm-hmm. during the week. So I think that's something to. And I, I totally get that we don't want you know robberies in there. We don't want things to go on there. You know, I get that 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 it needs to be you know thought out how how we can do it. But I think we need. And Pope Francis has been talking about this. He's he's mentioned it very clearly. Churches should not be locked up. He himself has said it many times in a lot of sermons that churches should not be locked up. They should be open. I also wanted to know more about, you know, you you bring up so many important points and I like what does your activism look like on a daily basis, right? Like how are you individually sort of fighting for change? Like what 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 does your work look like? Mm-hmm. It's like I think anyone's normal, you know, like yeah. sometimes you're in a protest, right? Sometimes you're getting arrested. So I'm also realizing that a lot of our work has to be um sharing the knowledge that we have that that, that other people have gave up gave to us. Yeah. You know, like my ancestors, you know, all the all the people before us, Dorothy Day and Cesar Chavez, all these people in the Catholic Church, right? right? Oscar Romero, all these people, you know, all that knowledge that they passed on to us, we need to pass it on to the next generation. You know, we're not going to be here forever. No. So I think it's important to, to kind of share with the the new generation, right? Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think the sort of passing off between generations of activism, you can really trace it, you know, from the 60s on and mm-hmm. how people have, like now people who are involved in the anti-Vietnam or anti-Vietnam war <laughs> protests and then um, and the original sanctuary movement and all of that are still sort of like the grandfathers of this new movement. Mm-hmm. But one of my last questions for you would be like, you know, how do you keep hope in the face of what seems like these forces that are so resistant to change, you know, like I was reading some profiles of you before we got to speak and it's remarkable that you continue your activism often alone. You've been described as a one-man social justice mission I know, by NBC, I think. Yeah, what is it like for you? You know, do you, like, does your spirituality really help you push through um, the the tribulations that you face or how do you really keep that hope alive? Yeah, what happens is, is that sometimes we are called, sometimes even just, just ourselves, just, we have to stand up sometimes because a lot of people in our community can't. You know, they have kids, they're facing deportation. And, and those of us with, 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 with um, some privilege, you know, the, 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 thanks to our ancestors that we have, uh, we have we have to step up. And I think, and it happens to all of us. It's not me. I think we're all going to be in that situation sometimes where, where, yeah, it's great to do it as a community. But sometimes, like, just there are times where no one's speaking and it, it could be you. You know, yeah. maybe God is going to call you to step <laughs> up. So, so I, I think for, for what's important for that is to always uh, prayer. I think is very important. That, 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 and for me, that, that that means even just a minute a day of of being quiet. And, you know, just kind of like making a, a minute there of silence and, and ask, like, you know, like what do you want from me this day? You know. And so I, I think just find you know, kind of finding what's good you know works for you. And then for me, I, that silence helps a lot. Which is funny. I come from a very loud culture. The Dominican, <laughs> the, Dominican the Dominican Republic is all about you know like no, a lot of noise and, yeah. and merengue and, and drums and and I love that. And I find God in that, right. but but it's also important, I think, to just from even right. if, even in just a minute, just like you know, make some silence and, yeah. and and ask. So that definitely helps me. Uh, music, I think, for me, inspiration is something that art is something that's important that yeah. that, that helps you to continue, like in the fight for for justice. Right. There, there's this movie Selma. Uh, um, oh, 
yeah, of course. And, and there's a part there which is awesome where Martin Luther King, like at four o'clock in the morning, calls this famous black singer. I can't remember her name, but they say it's true that he used to do that. He, he, sometimes he was just so sad and so depressed by what we were saying, right? All, all this evil in the in the world, and 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 sometimes he had to he at three o'clock in the morning he couldn't sleep and he would call his friend who was a singer. He's like, sing to me. Mm-hmm. He's like, this, I I really need you to sing to me. You know, like I, I'm so depressed and so sad right now. And she would sing to him. And that would give him energy to keep yeah. to keep fighting. So for me, music is so important. Like I'm always trying to be around musicians and then artists who who are trying to change the world, you know, right. with their art. I know that one way that people can help out people in sanctuary is actually by providing music. And I know that's something that has taken place in New York as well. You know, I like you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. being in sanctuary isn't really easy for the people who themselves are in sanctuary. And you know, offering the gift of music can really provide some sense of joy and. Oh yeah, uh, we we actually had an amazing concert right here next. Door oh wow! At, at Riverside that. Church, oh, there was great. someone there who wasn't sanctuary, yeah, and uh, private sanctuary. Um, um, and we brought out this whole marching band. Wow! <laughs> and they have an area there which is like outside area, which is right in front of this park, this beautiful park. And so it was amazing that day. It was like a spring day, and it was so sunny. Yeah. And we did that actually a couple of times. Actually, that's a way that that um some Catholics got involved with the sanctuary movement here. That uh, we were able to organize some parishes. Some Catholic parishes to bring their choirs to people in sanctuary. Wow. And so that was a way of like just giving a little hope and, and sharing. So there are many ways people can get involved, you know, for sure. Um, uh, offering sanctuary I think is important, but if, if there's no way of getting that, of making that happen, uh, figure out, you know, what ways you can support. Building off of that, you know, what does solidarity look like for people who can't, you know, provide physical sanctuary? What are some of the ways to get involved with the sanctuary movement or to just stand in solidarity with people seeking refuge in our country? How can we, like, in our individual communities, best support best support immigrants? Yeah, that's something that the sanctuary movement itself have, has been speaking about, that sanctuary isn't only offering sanctuary, like, in a church. It right. means, like... All kinds of ways. So businesses, you know, there are businesses here in New York. They're offering their space to, like, you know, people to, to come in or they offer food, you yeah. know, free food. People's home. There are people that are opening their homes to, like, immigrants, you know, where people can, like, stay there for a while. So there's so many ways. Uh, like, uh, and uh, we were able to get these choirs to come visit people in yeah. sanctuary. So there's so and there are people who are accompanying immigrants to court. Uh, to, so, so, so the judge and, and and the government can see that they're surrounded by a community. So there's so many ways of, of helping, and 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 uh, here in New York, a new sanctuary coalition is on uh, is online. So you can Google them, and then you can see you know what they're asking for. They're always needing volunteers, right. and so that's a way that you can you can help. And Catholic Charities, I know, also it also has a lot of programs for immigrants. So that's a way you can also like you know look into that and see what way they're always asking for volunteers too. So there are many ways that we can support immigrants and 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 again uh, offering sanctuary for for all you know not just for immigrants but for I think our church needs to we need to work more on that offering sanctuary to everyone you know people who are homeless people um, and uh, LGBT people you know uh, women uh, uh, so I think there are so many oppressed. Uh, communities and our church yeah we do a lot uh, again I, I totally acknowledge the good we do but I think we can do more The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media David Dalt did the editing we'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonweal Podcast If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. 
Thanks for listening.